Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for even holding off the rain for us so we can sing your praises outside and uh, declare your praises really to the community around us. I pray that you would use uh, our words, our praise to bring you glory and honor today. And as we look into your word, we pray now for your wisdom and your guidance, uh, your illumination by your Holy Spirit. You lead us into your truth and show us what it means to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. You ever feel like there's something wrong in your faith and walk with Christ? If you're like me, you may often feel a, a low-grade sense of guilt in your life, that there's something wrong. Maybe that you're not as committed as you should be, or that you've lost a passion, or that you fall into sin regularly, or your faith just isn't impacting your daily life. But I believe there's a major problem with this mindset, this constant guilt that we feel, because if Jesus is your Savior, if you believed in Him, you've confessed Him as Lord, then God says there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How much? None, right? No. There is, is there a little bit? Half as much as there was before? Occasional guilt? No, none whatsoever. There's no condemnation. None right now and forever. Which means a lot of us are piling on condemnation back on ourselves that Jesus has already taken away. We should not be living in condemnation at all if we are in Christ. However, that doesn't mean there isn't something wrong that should be addressed and corrected in our lives. Right? Your guilt may not be meant to condemn you, but to call you to change. Right? Because as followers of Christ, we're not meant to live in condemnation, but neither are we meant to live in apathy or compromise. And if we feel this way, it's very possible, even likely, that we need to repent. There might not be a passage of Scripture that says this more clearly than in Revelation 3. So let's open up there together now, either through one of your own Bibles or you can find a Bible on your phone. Revelation 3. In chapter 1 of Revelation, we saw the exalted Jesus gloriously unveil himself to his apostle John, and then he told him to transcribe letters to send out to seven churches. We may not be the original recipients of these letters, but God did intend for us to hear them too. And we'll see the seventh and final letter today, written to the church in the ancient city of Laodicea. Laodicea. Several major trade routes converged in the city of Laodicea, which turned the city into a wealthy commercial center. It was so wealthy that when earthquakes hit there, unlike other cities around the area, they didn't need Rome's aid. They rebuilt themselves with no outside help. They didn't need it. Laodicea was also known for its banking, the manufacturing of clothing, and their medical practices, all of which will be reflected in this letter to the church there. 
Last week, if you were followed along with us, we saw the Philadelphian church get only uplifting, positive feedback from Jesus. The church in Laodicea, on the other hand, was in the polar opposite situation. They got nothing positive at all from Jesus. Only critiques and correction. So brace yourselves, folks. But don't get defensive. All right? Let the Spirit speak to our hearts now. Because we may need it just as much as they did. Follow along from verse 14 in chapter 3. Jesus says this, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Now, this is actually the only time in Scripture that the Amen is used as a name or title. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, For all the promises of God find their yes in Christ. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. But here, Jesus actually calls himself the amen. This emphasizes his utter trustworthiness and truthfulness. He's the eternal, let it be so. He makes it happen. Second, At the beginning of Revelation, one of the ways that John introduces Jesus is as the faithful witness. Now Jesus expands on that and calls himself the faithful and true witness. Now, if you think of eyewitnesses uh, giving testimony in a courtroom, maybe on a TV show you've seen it, you're always wondering if they actually saw what happened or if they're actually telling the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. You don't have to wonder that at all with Jesus, though. And he sees everything. He's seen everything. Even better that we see things ourselves, he sees inside of us. And he's faithful and true in everything he sees and says. We can trust him. The third way Jesus introduces himself here is as the beginning of God's creation. You might be confused by that, thinking, well, isn't Jesus as God not part of creation? And you're absolutely right. When it says beginning here, it's not talking about being the first in a sequence of things that came after. It's talking about being the source of the sequence the originator, the archetype. In other words, all creation comes from him. As it says in Colossians 1, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So, even in just these three titles for Jesus, we see that everything Jesus says is trustworthy and true, and literally everything comes from him. And as with all these powerful letters... These are his words. 
to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. That sounds like someone we should listen to, doesn't it? Even if it's something difficult to hear, as was the case for Laodicea. See, here's the first point I'm going to give you. That Christ speaks to confront his church for self-sufficient apathy. Right? Christ speaks to confront and to correct his church for prideful, self-sufficient apathy. I think that's what's going on here. See where I get this from. Starting in verse 15, he says, I know your work, so I know what you have and you haven't done. And Jesus knows this about us too, by the way. Knows us inside and out. And like an all-knowing thermometer, he takes the Laodicean spiritual temperature. Look at it. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now these verses are misinterpreted all the time because we think, well, we need to be on fire for Christ, right? It's obviously better to be a hot Christian than a cold or lukewarm Christian. That's not what Jesus says here, is it? He says, you are neither hot, cold nor hot. Would that you are either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. He would just be, he'd be just as happy if we were cold. Anything but lukewarm. Some suppose Jesus is saying something like, well, I would rather you be cold and opposed to me or hot and on fire for me than in some kind of mushy middle. But it's, it's really inconceivable to think that Jesus would ever want his church to be opposed to him. And, and that's still assuming that cold is bad. When here it's not. Just think of the imagery he's using. He's comparing the Laodicean believers to water. Okay? And, and water can be quite useful when it's either hot or cold. Hot is great for cleaning and washing, for tending wounds, for cooking. And cold is great for, for drinking, for quenching our thirst. As it happens... The Laodiceans had a notorious problem in their city that they could not figure out how to solve. They had a lousy water supply. Laodicea was one of three main cities in their area. Hierapolis, one of them, was known for its hot springs used in medical treatments. And Colossae had the only fresh water supply in the area, cold and clear. What did Laodicea have? The Cadmus River which was the stinkiest, foulest river in the province. Its water was so gross that Laodicea built stone pipes and aqueducts to bring water in from all over the place. But by the time it arrived in Laodicea, it wasn't cold or hot anymore. It was tepid and had been contaminated by all sorts of other things. Of course, they had no fridges or freezers, so this is what they were stuck with. 
Visitors to the city would often even vomit after drinking their unsavory water. There have been plenty of times, even today, that you know, I've gone to get a drink of water from the tap, and thinking I was getting ice-cold water, I got lukewarm. And, you know, that, that feeling? Just spew it back into the sink. <laughs> so, you get what Jesus is saying now? Like, I wish you were hot or cold. Instead, you're useful for nothing and nauseating. Like their spiritual condition made Jesus want to puke. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth or spew you out of my mouth. They weren't providing healing for the sick or refreshing for the thirsty. And if they didn't repent, Jesus wouldn't tolerate their condition any longer. And just to be clear here, Jesus is talking to the church as a whole. So spitting out was not talking about individuals losing their salvation. Okay, but the church is made up of individuals, of course, and, and the sum is not greater than its parts. So what does it mean, what does it actually mean to be lukewarm as a church? Well, we'll see more shortly. But already, I think we can tell it has something to do with their works, right? He says, I know your works. Or more likely, it had to do with their lack thereof of works. And like I said, it seems they weren't offering healing or refreshing things that, by the way, the gospel inherently offers to the spiritually needy. So as a church... In some way, they weren't doing what a church should have been doing. We could speculate, maybe they had given up on the Great Commission. We don't know. But they weren't doing what a church needed to be doing. There was an apathy, a complacency, perhaps a laziness. Like their wealthy, comfortable city, the church had sat back and slacked off. The old evangelist G. Campbell Morgan says, lukewarmness is the worst form of blasphemy. Now, why would that be? Well, think about who's talking here. And the, the sovereign Lord of all, the amen of God, the faithful and true, the, the origin of creation, to be lukewarm says that Christ is not worthy of wholehearted faith. That's really the essence of the matter there. And Christ isn't worthy of my life. And so at this point, just ask yourself, does this describe you at all? Because if it does, or if it describes our church at all, it is a very Serious matter. You might wonder, well, how did the Laodiceans get this way? What caused their complacency? And we get quite the insight in verse 17. Look at what it says. It says, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. 
So like their city, not relying on outside help, the Laodicean church acted self-sufficient. And they, they, this was at least part of their apathy, and it very well could have actually caused their apathy. They were lackadaisical in their faith because they thought they had everything they needed. They had it made. They had it all. They were successful. They didn't need to grow. And is it ever the temptation to think this way whenever we are prosperous here and now? I know that some of you may be struggling financially, materially for various reasons, but most people in Canada and Ottawa are unbelievably wealthy compared to the rest of the world and compared to most of history. Even when we struggle, we have it pretty good. And we all have, we have all the food and clean water we need. We have all the clothes we need. Most of us have the jobs we need. We have the shelter we need. We have universal health care for basically all we need, all the education we can need. We have the internet, all the internet and, and phone plans we can need, all the Google and Amazon we need. We purchase all the entertainment and toys and devices we think we need. It's not a big jump to feel we have all the Jesus we need. You say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Danny Aiken warns that no church should be satisfied with who or where it thinks it is. It is always dangerous when we think we are something special to God. We should continually remind ourselves that we are nothing apart from him. We in our sin are easily deceived. Our God does not need us. No, we all desperately need him. If we are content with where we are spiritually, I believe it's evidence of pride in our hearts. Right? And pride blinds us to reality. It blinds us to how things really are. We imagine that we're better than we really are. We think that we have all the right opinions and views out there, like everyone else out there, maybe all mine, everyone else is wrong. We feel okay about ourselves because there's always someone else who's worse than us. When someone criticizes us, we leap to our own defense because that obviously can't be true of us. We don't pray or maintain consistent devotions because we don't feel we need it. Looking at this passage, one of my friends suggested that the pandemic that we're in right now, he wrote, may serve to shock us out of our unrecognized reliance on luxury and ease. It is entirely possible that this life of relative luxury has caused us to rely on our wealth, safety, and leisure. And we may be materially prosperous and spiritually destitute without even realizing it. Because again, our pride blinds us to reality. One of the key purposes of Revelation 
is to reveal or unveil true reality, to pull back the curtain on how things really are. And here, Jesus comes and blows the doors off the Laodiceans' imaginary sufficiency. They weren't self-sufficient. They were self-deficient. Look what he says again. For you say I'm rich, I've prospered, I need nothing, not realizing, here's reality, that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. They were wretched. They spiritually miserable or useless. They were pitiable, not the impressive specimens they thought they were, more pathetic. They were poor. In a city that had wealth oozing out of its pores, they were dirt poor. They were blind. Couldn't see who they really were. And they were naked. Exposed. Shameful. Impoverished. The last two items on that list, as well as poverty as well, but blindness and nakedness have interesting connections to Laodicea. Because I mentioned earlier that they were known for their medical treatments. There was actually a famous school of medicine in Laodicea which developed a special compound for curing eye diseases, of all things. And their city was known for treating people with eyesight problems. And now Jesus comes along and says, you're blind. The city is also known for their clothing manufacturing. So to be naked in Laodicea is just unthinkable, shocking. And it's irony. In their comfortable self-sufficiency, they thought they had everything they needed, but they lacked in matters of faith and love and eternity, everything that actually mattered. And now, hearing all this, we will tend to have one of two reactions to this, which may sound familiar to you. We will either think, God, thank you that I am not like other sinners, like the Laodiceans. Like, thank God that I have it more together than they did. Or we'll see how much we resemble them. This is exactly what we're like without Christ. Or even with Christ, how much our pride and self-sufficiency have clung to us. And we'll cry out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Those are our two responses. I hope you choose the latter. Because we all desperately need Christ. Or more of Christ. This is actually the remedy that Jesus offers them. Like there is hope for them if they will take Jesus' advice. Look at verse 18. It says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. I counsel you, I advise you, this is what you should do. And then Jesus, as if he were a merchant, offers to sell them these three things. 
They think they're rich and prosperous. But Jesus offered them gold. They think they need nothing. Jesus said, no, you need clothing. You need medicine. Here's how I would sum up Jesus' counsel for the Laodiceans and by extension for us. Christ speaks to counsel his church towards true wealth that leads to true repentance. Christ speaks to counsel his church to receive true wealth that leads us to true repentance. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. Now notice, Jesus wants us to be rich. Just rich in the right things. Right? They've been going to the wrong stores, shopping in the wrong marketplaces, buying the wrong merchandise. Not that earthly wealth is inherently bad, but it had led to their self-sufficiency. So instead, Jesus says he has gold, pure gold. Gold is better than any gold we know. It's already been refined by fire, and he offers to sell some to them so that they could be truly rich, rich in reality, rich in what matters most, rich in eternity. Christ then offers to address their nakedness. says, and buy for me white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. Now, in the Bible, nakedness is often seen as a symbol for judgment and shame. Now, even in, as Adam and Eve were cast out of Eden, they were, they were naked, and they were ashamed, and they were under judgment. But what did God do? He killed an animal and clothed them with its skins. That demonstrated, even from the very beginning, that in order to cover our sin and shame, something had to die. It's what we all deserve for our blasphemous treason against God's throne. Of course, today we have closets and dressers full of clothes that we clothe ourselves with now, but we could be wearing the finest clothes on earth and be naked in God's sight. Spiritually exposed and deficient and humiliated and unrighteous. So, what did God do? He sent his son to be killed. And he clothes us with his righteousness. Another passage in Revelation says that heavenly garments are white because they are washed white in the blood of the Lamb. The blood of Christ. White clothing, pure white righteousness can only be found in Jesus. And it's only available to us in Jesus because he died in our place, taking our shame and judgment on himself on the cross. In love, he doesn't want, he says, our shame to be exposed. He wants to clothe us at no cost, no less. Because the price has already been paid. Tells us to come purchase something. The price has already been paid. Won't you let Christ clothe you today? Maybe for the first time. 
put your trust in him. Receive his righteousness. Or if you've done this before, maybe today you need to look down and remind yourself of the clothes that you're now wearing in God's sight. Then thank Jesus. We should be ashamed of ourselves. Yet there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Finally, Jesus says he wants to heal their blindness if they'll let him, advising them to buy salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Like the Laodiceans' famous physical eye treatments, Jesus has the means to heal spiritual eyes. Their condition was critical, but it was not terminal. He could heal them. Spiritual apathy so easily blinds us to our spiritual health, we don't even notice our need. If we're to repent well, then we need to evaluate ourselves honestly with the Spirit's help. And this is why David's prayer in Psalm 139 can be so valuable to us to pray all the time. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. You need to pray that right now to the Lord. If you feel convicted at all today, like you too may be nauseating the demons, there's a remedy. It's actually all because of his love. Love, you say? Yes, even in this passage, love. Okay, the Laodiceans may have been lukewarm, and yet they were still loved. Look, verse 19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Once we receive the riches of God's grace, true wealth, we should be moved to wholeheartedly and thoroughly and persistently repent. Like we have to see our self-sufficient apathy and indifference for the sin that it is, and repent. Reject it. And do whatever you must do to get rid of it, to turn away from it, to leave it behind. If you're at a loss about how to do this, I'd love to try to help you with that. Come talk to me afterwards. But whether you are an unbeliever, or a new believer, or a longtime believer, a leader in the church, like, don't just ignore or shrug off your need to repent today. Like, that would be the epitome of apathy and an extremely concerning sign. We should also see God's confrontation here, his correction, as an expression of his love. For it's right, if he didn't love us, he would leave us as we are, on our way to spiritual oblivion. But because he loves us, like any good parent, he must discipline us. And his desire here is clearly that to see things turned around for us. 
He wants us rich and clothed and healed and loved and holy. If you feel at all spiritually disgusting today, take heart here. As Dane Ortland encourages us, says time and again, it is the morally disgusting, the socially reviled, the inexcusable and undeserving who do not simply receive Christ's mercy, but to whom Christ most naturally gravitates. He is friend of sinners. I don't see myself as a sinner in need of God's friendship, of Jesus' friendship. I'm again clinging to my pride. So may each of us humble ourselves today. And thank God that, that we qualify as someone Jesus wants to be friends with. A wretched sinner. Where sin runs deep, his grace is more. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. And amazingly, Jesus is right here with us, wanting to incite this change in us today, which means there's hope. Don't believe me? Don't believe there's hope or that your situation is redeemable? Believe it. This is right where one of the most famous verses in Revelation appears. Look at verse 20. It says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. And I think that when we hear this verse out of context, we imagine that it's written for old friends of Jesus whom he's going to visit. Or maybe for someone who's never heard of him, needs to meet him for the first time. Not for a church full of people who make him sick to his stomach. Yet there it is. Turns out he is a friend of sinners after all. He wants to come in and have a dinner party with pathetic people. Like people like you and people like me. Even after the clear command to repent, we might wonder how we can actually change for good. I love what Daryl Johnson says here. He says, here we come to even more grace. They need not move at all. Behold, Jesus says, look, it is a command. Look, I am standing at the door and I am knocking. I am right here and I have all you need. Here we discover the root cause of lukewarmness. It is caused by excluding Jesus. It is as simple and as tragic as that. I stand at the door and knock. He is outside and he wants to come in. The solution to lukewarmness, therefore, is not to jack up warm emotions. The solution is not to exert more self-sufficiency. The solution is to open the door again. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he 
with me. This is the beginning of what amounts to a mind-boggling promise for Laodicea. Like last week's church, fabulous Philadelphia, seemed like they almost deserve this. Something like this at least. But not lukewarm Laodicea. And yet Christ ends, as he just as he did with all the others, with grace. A promise of future glory, along with the challenge to conquer and persevere. So, Christ speaks, finally, to challenge his church with the promise of eternal fellowship and glory. Christ speaks to challenge his church with the promise of eternal fellowship and glory. Just think, if a, if a friend invited themselves over for lunch after church today, how would you feel about that? Besides maybe concerned about the coronavirus or stressed about your messy house, you feel excited, right? You, you'd feel loved by your friend that they want to spend time with you. What if I invited myself over to your place as your pastor? And you might feel nervous. Well, what does the pastor want to see me? But I suspect you'd also feel honored, right, that I chose to, to hang out with you out of anyone I could have. What if one of your heroes in life, okay, someone famous, talented, brilliant, think of, think of someone, okay? What if they showed up on your doorstep today for dinner? How would you feel then? Super duper honored, right? And why would they want to chill with you? You realize how much more astronomically astonishing it is for Jesus to knock on our door. The Almighty? The King? The Alpha and Omega? The Amen? Savior, the Creator, what is man that you are mindful of him? Son of man that you care for him. And yet he's crowned us with glory and honor. For Christ to offer to, to come in and eat with us, that's an offer of intimate fellowship as friends. In the ancient world, to, to share a meal together was to share a life. If we, by our lifestyles, have left Christ on the outside looking in, he wants back in. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, like, here I am, I'm at your door, knocking right now. Do you hear me? And have you ever been locked out of a door that you really needed to get into? You're there just pounding on the door, ringing the doorbell, trying to get someone's attention inside, maybe even resort to calling someone on their phone, like, open your door! <laughs> Take away the frustration side of that, okay? And just picture Christ calmly pounding on your door. Trying to Get your attention. He's trying to get your attention through his word, by his spirit, 
trying to get our attention as his church? Will you hear his knocking? And will you open up the door today? He's the one who knocks, trying to wake up the spiritually lethargic and lukewarm. He is calling you and me out of complacency and compromise. He wants us to to stop self-sufficiently and self-destructively excluding him. He's wanting to heal our blindness, to clothe us with righteousness, to lavish riches on us. He wants to, to share rich fellowship with us. For the rest of the time, believe it or not. He's not forcing his way in here. He's waiting for us to answer the door. So what will our response be? Like I talked about at the start today, if you feel that there's something wrong in your spiritual life, perhaps it's because you've excluded Jesus in some way. Maybe the door was open before, but for some reason you've shut him out again. Now you wonder why you feel empty and dry and stale, even unresponsive. Maybe Jesus is still in your house, but you've shut him out of certain rooms. You've excluded him from your finances room, your sexuality room, your relationships room, your work room, your grief room your social media, your dreams room, your anxiety room. He could be knocking on any one of those doors today. Will we let him in? Will we let him have it all? The danger of refusing Jesus' admittance or or readmittance is real and deadly. And yet, the promises given here so much greater than the dangers. Jesus befriending and honoring and blessing and fellowshipping with us. And then this one, verse 21. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Did you catch that? If we conquer, in this case, by faithfully repenting, reopening the door to Christ, Jesus promises to share his very own throne with us. What? Seven times to seven churches, Jesus declared, the one who conquers will be eternally blessed in some way. It's great that he ends these letters by reminding us that he's the original conqueror, right? That, that he did it first. Just, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. We can conquer because he already did. Jesus won and was given a throne. So too, through him, we can win and be given a throne. Now, this doesn't mean we're going to be equal to Jesus. No way. He'll always be far greater than us. But this is an eternal expression of being united to Jesus. Right? Forever in 
Christ. And if Christ reigns, we will reign with him, as Scripture makes clear. And along with that throne will come some level of authority and honor and glory. Listen to Ephesians 2, which tells us that when Christ conquered the grave, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Like that's what's coming for God's people. Immeasurable riches, true and eternal wealth, which will make this world's treasure, by the way, look like we're hoarding dead leaves. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. The church in Laodicea had an unbelievably gracious opportunity. Whether or not they heeded Jesus' words here, we aren't certain. But we do know that when we come to the end of the book of Revelation, victorious saints are indeed sitting on thrones and reigning alongside Jesus. It's, it's a real, breathtaking offer. Open to all who will receive what Jesus so graciously offers. The only thing left to say, is he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Over the last three chapters, we've seen Christ speaking again and again to his church. He is unquestionably still speaking today, in this moment, to our hearts. And as Vance Havner concludes, the big question today is not, is God speaking? The really big question is, are you listening? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Please pray with me. Oh Lord, how we need you. Each one of us needs you every day. And you know there's ways we've shut you out. So we rejoice today that where our sin has run so deep that your grace is more, that your mercy is more, and that your mercies are new this morning. Help us to truly receive that grace today and help it to change our lives You are so good to us. Help us repent. Help us grow to be more like you. 
and help us look forward to the day that all these promises will be completely fulfilled and completely true in your presence. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.